How's it going? Good. You guys go okay? My, the other pastors always say, don't ask people how they're doing. <laughs> it's too awkward, but I can't help it sometimes. It is good to be with you. I'm excited to open the Word of God and get to share it with you. Is anyone else excited to hear the Word today? Amen. Well, I'm going to um, just jump right in here. It is hard to believe in Jesus in this day and age. Anyone agree with that? It is simply hard. There are so many obstacles to our belief. Just every single day. It is truly a narrow path. The path of following Jesus. The way of the world is wide. I know some of you personally in here struggle with doubt regularly. Or maybe you're like me. It's not not necessarily that, that you doubt your salvation for yourself on a, on a given day, but it's, it's more as it relates to the world around you. you. You struggle to believe and act like this is the exclusive saving message for all the world. So there's these, there's these doubts that we have. Some of, some of you in here, I've met many of you that, that you're curious about Jesus, but you're not yet there. There's, there's, you know, maybe he's, to you, uh, an interesting figure, historical figure. He's a, he's a good person, but if, it seems just a little far-fetched that he is the exclusive Savior of the world. So we all come at this Jesus with, from different perspectives this morning. And, and really, I, I can say that we're, we're all struggling here. We're all under this, in this world, struggling to believe in this Jesus. I believe God has a gift for each one of us in those particular places in his word that can radically transform not only our belief and confidence in Jesus personally, but also transform the way that we interact with the lost world around us. I believe that's here in the text today. Today is Pentecost Sunday, as, as Michael already said. And on this Sunday, we like to give emphasis to God's global mission. And providentially, God brought us to this text as we've been walking through 1 John, which is going to ask us this question. Is Jesus really the Savior of the whole world? I'm so glad that we walk through books of the Bible, and it's so cool sometimes when it just lines up perfectly with what we are studying or what we want to emphasize. So this is the question today that we're going to try to answer, and I just want to pray one more time that God would help us. God, our Father, I'm asking you, we're asking you once again that you would bear witness by your word and your Holy Spirit through me, your servant, that Jesus, you are truly the Son of God and the answer to the needs of the whole world. Please come and speak to us now. We ask in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. All right, so last week, Sam posed a question from the text, and I want, if you have your Bibles, just follow along with me there. I want to look at chapter 5, verse 5. Right at the end of his section, he posed this question, who is it that overcomes the world? Is this working? Should I use this? Oh, it is. Okay. I'll just use this. Uh, it doesn't say it's dead, but I'll just use this one. So the question is this. Who is it that overcomes the world? 
see that there in the text, verse 5? The answer that John gives is only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. First, I want to ask this question. Why is it so important that we overcome the world? Why is it so important? So we've learned so far in John's letter that the world refers to the domain of Satan. This is is great. Thank you, Mike. I'll give it a minute here. Thank you, Michael. Let's give him a round of applause for his care and for the sound team that each week is working hard. Thanks, dude. I know that that was helping everybody in here to feel a little bit more spiritual, that little hum in here, but, but for my sake, we'll move forward. Why do we need to overcome the world? Why is it so important? So John has been talking about the world a lot. What does he mean by the world? He's talking about the domain of Satan. That is a fallen angel who rebelled against God. He's powerful. And not only does he influence people to reject God and his commands, he's also influencing many human teachers, many antichrists, as as John puts it, who are going into the world and deceiving people and hindering people from believing in Jesus. So that's what we're up against. That's the world that we swim in. John also asserts this. He says the world is passing away along with its desires. So it's not just that John doesn't want you to be deceived. He's like, I want you to live. The world is passing away. All the desires, the path of the world is a path of destruction. Even though it's wide for you, it will lead to death. That's why it's so important that we overcome. Now, how do we overcome? He says, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. We already said the obstacles to believing that are massive. But how does believing help us overcome? Well, listen to this. The central issue, the central battle that we are fighting is our belief. It is over our belief. In other words, if you win, if you believe in Jesus, you've won the war. If you don't believe in Jesus, you've lost the battle. That's the central element of the battle is your belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. This is what John is going to assert. He is the Savior of the world. And so our overcoming is completely contingent on what we do with that man, with Jesus Christ. Is that clear what I'm saying there? Overcoming is, sent, is, is only possible by believing because believing is the battle, whether we believe or not. This is why he's working so hard throughout this book. He even says, I'm writing so that you'll be confident that you have eternal life in this Jesus. And he goes over and over. He pours himself out to try to help prove that Jesus is the Son of God. From the beginning of the letter, he gives reasons. He says, listen, we saw him. We touched him. And we proclaim to you that this is the life. This is he. So we have all these eyewitnesses. He's going to give other ideas, but and one, of the, one of the core ideas that he gives is that the church is another manifestation of God on earth. So when we see the church loving sacrificially in all of its diversity, 
we should say, that's proof that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So he gives all these proofs that we've been looking through, and we're coming to the end of this book. And, and at the end of this book, John is just simply summarizing a lot of these ideas and landing the plane for us and helping to point us to Jesus again. He wants to strengthen our faith, and today he's going to give us three more key witnesses to help us believe and strengthen our faith. So finally, we can get into the text that is ours today. Verse 6, look there now. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. So first thing he does is he just asserts boldly, this is he. Jesus Christ. And remember, we keep saying Christ is not a last name of Jesus. It is a title meaning Messiah or anointed one. It is synonymous with the title Son of God. They have some differences, but really John is saying this is he. This is the one. Now, biblically... The Messiah was who everyone was waiting for. The Christ is who, from Genesis chapter 3, people were longing for. Sin enters the world. It breaks fellowship with God. And from the beginning, God made promises that he was going to save the world through an offspring, namely the Messiah. And so all through the Bible, you keep hearing this question resound. Is he the one? Is this the offspring? Is he the Messiah? The prophets, they prophesy about him. They say, he hasn't come yet. He's coming, and this is what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to do. This is what he's going to accomplish. And so when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, and, and you know, after his silence for 400 years, everybody's saying, is he the one? Is he the one? Maybe he's the one. And then when Jesus shows up, the question constantly throughout the Gospels, is this the Messiah? That's what people are longing for and waiting for because the answer the world needs for sin and death is none other than the Messiah. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. That in itself could be a sermon in this day and age that we need a Savior because the whole world is saying, I'm doing pretty good myself. But church, the Bible through and through says we're broken and lost and we need a Savior. The Christ was prophesied to bring an everlasting kingdom and to restore Eden, to give back everything that the enemy stole, that our sin stole. He was promised to destroy the enemies of God's people to cleanse us from sin from the inside out. He was promised to make all things new, to bring life out of the death that sin produced. That's what he was promised to do. So they were waiting for this. And John says, friends, he's here. He's come. Jesus. Jesus. He's here. Everything you've been waiting for, he's here. Jesus. The Christ. Now, you see this middle clause in verse 6. Look back at your Bibles with me. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. If you're not confused, well done. I think everyone 
Every single time I read this passage, I'm like, wait, I thought I knew what this meant. (laughs) What is the water and the blood? What is going on here? And I think generally this passage is, is a little bit challenging, and yet it is extremely simple at the same time. So... These, these two things, water and blood, are John's first proofs or witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And he emphasizes it again. He's like, I really want you to pay attention here. It's not just by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Okay? Now, what is the water and the blood? What, what, what is that? Now, I'll give you my answer first, and then I'll try to show you how I get there, Okay? I believe the water is referring to Jesus' baptism event. And I believe that the blood is referring to the cross of Jesus where his blood was spilled, right? When you search the Bible for Jesus in connection to water, you will find a few, right? Probably most quickly, baptism comes to your mind. That's such a significant moment. And most... I would say the majority of Bible scholars believe that this is referencing the baptism, okay? But I, for sake of the argument, I, I do want to mention there are some other views, one of them, one of which is, is that the water and blood are actually tied together here, and they reference the death of Christ, poetically proclaiming that Jesus, as he poured out his life fluids, blood and water, he was bringing life to all mankind, now, I love Bible connections like that. I think you can, you can make those sorts of connections. You're like, that is awesome. His life fluids came out and brought life to everyone. And I think you should get excited about that. But I don't think that's what John is doing here. I don't. Maybe Ross does. <laughs> uh, and Ross is a really good Bible scholar. So there, there are going to be some differences here. But I think it's referring to, the bap- to baptism. Uh, you might also tease out something like... Uh, Jesus as the living water. Or you might try to tease out that he's fully man, that he was born into the world through blood and water like all mankind. People will make these sorts of arguments, but nothing about these other ideas seems to provide as clear an affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God like the baptism does for me. So I want to look there. Open your Bibles to Luke 3, Luke chapter 3. I want you to turn there. There's a Bible right in front of you if you uh, don't have one with you. Luke chapter 3, it's the third gospel. We're looking at verse 21 and 22. Can you say whoop if you have it? Okay, that was like five of you. One more time. Okay, a handful of you. All right, it says this, verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In this first account that I think John is referencing we hear God give a divine affirmation of his son. He says with this audible voice, Jesus, this one is my son. 
If you were to look down a little further in, in that same chapter, you'll, you'll find a genealogy. And right at the bottom of that genealogy, what are the words that, that he ends with? It says, Jesus the what? Do you see it? Say it louder. Son of God. So, Luke wants you to see, hey, this is the Son of God. The baptism is a massive, along with other things, affirmation. It's a massive affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants to make that point. So the first event that he points to is a God, the first event that is a God-given witness that Jesus is the Son of God is the water or the baptism of Jesus Christ. I love this. The second is the blood. What's going on with the blood? Now, some, again, have posited that the blood refers to Jesus' humanity or his birth in some way, but most scholars agree that the clearest picture is the cross, that this is referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Maybe you remember when Jesus died, those events that happened around his death were were told that the whole sky darkened at high noon, (laughs) that the earth began to shake, People testified that the curtain temp, uh, uh, what is it called? The temple uh, curtain. I flipped those words. <laughs> you guys are like, you got it. You're almost there. The, the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the people tore right down the middle. From the top to the bottom. That's right, D. All of these things, when people are watching, cannot help but profess, including the pagan centurion. This is the Son of God! Right? People cannot help but say, there was a divine affirmation there. This is the Son of God. So at the cross, people knew that the Father was saying, this is He, through these signs. So the water and the blood, these two events... John wants to bring to your mind not only the affirmation of the Father at the baptism and at the cross, but also give you a clear reminder of the finished work on the cross who shed His blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the Son of God has come. The one our hearts are waiting for. He's come to cleanse us. Now, what does it mean in verse 6 that Jesus came by these things? I don't think we should get too caught up on the, the language there. It's a little clunky in the ESV, but I think simply John is saying that these events revealed his identity. He came by these events proving his identity as the Son of God. He's essentially saying, look, he's here. He's come. It's Jesus. He's the Christ. Now, I want you to look at the second half of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, this is verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So first I just want to emphasize this word testimony that's going to come up again and again. And this is the first time we see this. It basically means to confirm or attest to something based on personal knowledge or belief. It's to to bear witness as to what you've seen. So John is evoking, I want you to see this, John is evoking here the idea, it's like a courtroom scene. There are witnesses 
And this is why the number three is significant also. If you look through scripture, you're going to find multiple references over and over again that truth is established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. See Deuteronomy 19.15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So John's audience would have known this very well, that three witnesses means, hey, pay attention here. This is sound. This is the real deal. So John is setting up the evidence based on three witnesses so that we can be certain about who Jesus is. I just love that the Bible does this, man. It pulls out all the stops for us. Like, it helps us in everything that we need, humanly speaking, to come to an understanding and a knowledge of the gospel. It's so good for us. So he's evoking this courtroom scene and helping us to believe based on this evidence. Now look, at, look again at verse 6. Who does he say testifies here? Do you guys see it? Who testifies in verse 6? The Spirit. John goes a little further and says, he testifies, why? Because he is the truth. Now, that's a little bit complicated. Two questions arise for me when I'm reading that. Well, who is the Spirit? Who is, what is he talking about? And what is the truth? If you look ahead a little bit to verse 9... I think we get, we get a helpful answer about the Spirit's identity. John is going to emphasize there that all of this is God's testimony. The Spirit, the water, the blood. He says, this is the testimony of God. And all of these testimonies agree ultimately because it is God who is testifying. So the Spirit, who is the truth, the voice of the truth, and God's testimony here are synonymous. And so what I, what I think we can see here is that the Spirit is none other than the third person of the triune God who testifies with God because He is truth, and God is truth. We see in Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. God is in his essence truth. The spirit is truth. There is no way he can testify otherwise. And he has come to testify in this circumstance. Now our culture has a lot to say about truth, doesn't it? Or the absence of truth. Truth is relative. Your truth, my truth. These, these ideas, right? But John, John says, friends, there is a truth. There is an absolute truth, and that truth is in God. God is true. The Holy Spirit is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. He's not one of many truths. He defines truth. He, he is truth. He sets the reality. But how exactly is the Spirit considered a witness here to Jesus' identity? So just as we, we, first of all, we just read in Luke chapter 3, maybe you're still there, it says that when Jesus was baptized, accompanying him from, uh, accompanying the voice from heaven was the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus and remaining on him for all to see. 
Now listen to John, in John's gospel, the same author of, of this book, we see him write about another figure who testified about that event, John the Baptist, not to be confused with the Apostle John. Listen to John the Baptist's words. He said, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus. And it says this, verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him at that point, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is God, said to me, this is God speaking to John the Baptist, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, this is John testifying here, I have seen and have borne witness. There's that word again. This is the Son of God. So the Spirit of God bore witness to Jesus' identity. And John the Baptist says, it's he. The Spirit told me. He showed us by the Spirit, that this is a witness. In fact, this is the very purpose of the Holy Spirit stated by Jesus in John 16. He said that the Holy Spirit's primary role in this world is to testify through the Scriptures and in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. If you were to go to that chapter and look at verse 9, you see that he's, he's there to, to help us believe in Jesus. He's also there to, to show us that He is the only means of salvation for all. And also to testify that judgment is coming for all who continue to submit to the ruler of this world. This is the express purpose of the Holy Spirit, to bear witness to Jesus as the Son of God. So the Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three agree. These are the testimony, these are the witnesses that God has given us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If we have time, we could show dozens of biblical prophecies that Jesus fulfilled concerning His identity. I could point you to the many signs and wonders that Jesus did, all of which were pointing to His identity. Not to mention the resurrection, church. If we had time, we could look at all of these things. But with these powerful truths, John wants you to see, you and me, we have powerful evidence. We have eyewitness evidence. We have solid evidence, spirit-given evidence, biblical evidence that the Savior of the world has come and His name is Jesus. He's come. Now, John wants to offer a a bit of a warning in verses 9 and 10. Will you look there with me? He says this, if we receive the testimony of men, and this is evoking the the courtroom analogy still, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. This is the testimony of God, these things that we've just looked at. Well, John is speaking strongly here, and he's he's trying to say, look, look, you have no reason not to believe. We all, we all believe the testimony of men, even if we don't see it with our own eyes. Do we not? We, we do that all the time. We have to, because we can't be in all places at all times. We have to trust the evidence or the testimonies that others have brought. He says, you do that, 
How much more should you pay attention to what God has laid forth for us? The affirmations, the witnesses that he's given to us, right? If God has spoken from heaven and given sufficient witness to confirm that Jesus is his son, why should you doubt? Why should you doubt? Surely if you believe men's testimony, you can believe God's. I was thinking about this this morning. Perhaps your hang up this, at this point is Scripture itself. Okay, Daniel, you say that, that, that it says that God has given us this affirmation, but we're just trusting in this book, right? How are, we, how are we supposed to hold fast to that ancient book? How do we know it's not fabricated? Again, this is another sermon entirely but, that I cannot preach, but I can say this. That the man who we're reading right now was boiled in oil because he never recanted the things that he taught and believed. I can say that his fellow apostles died on crosses like Jesus. That many witnesses to Jesus were sawed in two. They went on to be murdered in the Colosseum. Over and over and over again, people said, we, how can we do anything but believe? We've seen with our own eyes. We've touched Him. We've seen Him and we know that this is true. Come talk to me if you want to talk more about this, but know this, church. Not only is it extremely unlikely that these stories were made up, but the Bible itself is more strongly attested as a historical document than every other piece of ancient literature combined. You can do the study for yourself. We can study it together. But I want to show you that that's true, which gives us confidence that what we have written here was written by these apostles who saw this stuff. We could spend more time there. I wish we could, but we got to move forward. The point is this. You can take this to the bank church. You can take this to the bank. The Bible is God's word and it testifies that Jesus is who he says he is. He is indeed the savior of the world. Now look at verse 10 with me. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God that God has borne concerning his son. Let's look at this first phrase. He has a testimony in himself. I really, really love this, church. People who put their faith in Jesus not only have external evidence that is solid, like we just talked about, but we also have a testimony in ourselves. We have a testimony within us. Longtime pastor, Tim Keller, who just passed to be with the Lord, I feel so grateful for his ministry, he answered a skeptic's question in an interview and this is the question she asked. Are you open to being proved wrong? How do you know if it's, if it's not true? How do you know if it's true? How do you know if all of your life work is for not, all for naught? I'll paraphrase Keller here. He said, if you're asking if I believe that you could challenge and dismantle some of my arguments, I would say certainly you can. But the basis of my belief is not easily challenged because it is twofold. First, 
I believe God has given sufficient evidence that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again for humanity's salvation. I've examined the facts, and they check out. Secondly, I have a transforming and lasting experience personally with this gospel message and with this God that combined with the facts gives me little reason to doubt. What Keller's trying to say is that God has given us objective evidence, but that's not all. That is essential, and without it, I would say to any of you, if there's not fact for this stuff, you should not believe it. But that's not the end of the story. Christians, God has mercifully and graciously given us an eternal witness so that when we hear this gospel, when we hear this truth, we cannot help but say, It's true! It's changed my life completely. I was a dead man or woman, and now I'm alive in Jesus Christ. That's why you're sitting in these pews, is it not? That's why you're here. That's why you give up your time and energy to follow Jesus. Because your heart screams, it's true. The Spirit of God within you testifies and bear witness to your spirit. This that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? On the other hand, John warns of this. He says, when we keep on hearing the facts, we who fail to believe, when we keep on hearing the facts and continually learn about Jesus and keep searching and searching, but we never come to a knowledge of the truth, What does it say? It says we're making God out to be a liar. We're making him out to be a liar. Because when we fail to believe and when we are on this perpetual, never-ending journey to try to figure out what we believe, what we're ultimately doing is we're putting ourselves in the judgment seat and we're looking at God and saying, hmm, is this good enough to believe? Is that enough for me? Church, the stakes are high. Friends, the stakes are high here. Unbelief is uglier than we might let on. It's not as simple as, oh, maybe they'll believe at some point. No, when we fail to believe in Jesus who has given us evidence for his identity, friends, we are proclaiming, I know better. We are proclaiming to the world, God is a liar and I'm a better judge of the truth. Now, in verse 11 and 12, John concludes with a summary of the testimony that God has given. And this is the testimony, he says, read along with me there silently. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Isn't that just like a mic drop sort of statement right there? Summarizing all of what he said. Friends, listen to the gospel of God that has been proclaimed from the church and down to this age. Hear it as though God is speaking to you right now, friends. God has given us eternal life, and it is in the Son. Every single one of us have sinned and transgressed God's holy law. Every single one of us, when we stand before the judgment seat, will have more than two or three witnesses that will come and say, He transgressed She failed here and here and here. Every single one of us. 
And yet God did not let that be the end of the story for us. He did not let that be the end of the story in our death. He sent Jesus, the Son, out of his great love for us because God is love and he doesn't desire anyone in this world to perish. Amen? Jesus stepped down from heaven, sent from the Father to rescue us. In church, at his baptism, he was proclaiming, hey, I'm going to get down into your muck and into your sin, and I'm then going to rise again from death, cleansing you from all of it. And then he went to the cross, fulfilling exactly what he promised to do, and his blood shed, his, the water poured out. If you want to go there as well, gives us life. Life for the dead. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus proclaims. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is, sorry, John's proclamation to us. This is God's proclamation to us. There is no other name but Jesus by which we will be saved. Do you want life? It's only in the Son. It's not going to be found anywhere but in the Son. And if you believe in this Jesus, you can be confident that you have eternal life and that that life has started now as God begins to transform you from the inside out as you're in relationship with Him, the eternal life. Finally, John's statement in verse 12 could not be more black and white. I just want to make one more point here before we close. You must know, friends, when he says that whoever has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son has life, that he does not leave the, the way or the, the door open for other paths of salvation. He does not leave the door open for many paths to heaven. That message is a lie from the devil, friends. It's a lie of the world that's deceiving people and trying to destroy people. There is only one means of salvation, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ. But I also need you to know that even though this is an exclusive way of salvation in Jesus, that this is also so inclusive. For anyone who comes, Jesus said, he will bring them in. Every single person, every single walk of life, every sexuality, he will invite you in. And here's what I need you to know. As you come to Jesus, if you believe in this Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that means you have to say, Lord... You are king now. Every desire, every passion, every belief surrendered to you. I bow the knee. My identity that I have made for myself, my sexuality, my worldview, everything submits to you, Jesus. That's what it means to come to Jesus. Would you come to him this morning? If you're here this morning and don't know if you have life, if you've been waiting because you were waiting for more proof or evidence, I just want to call you, come and believe. God will give you proof. He will give you internal proof. If you're waiting for the proof internally before you believe, I just have to say, stop making God a liar. Come to him. He's witnessed. He's testified. He will bear the evidence as you come and believe in him inside. Come to him today, friends. Come talk to me and pray with me if that's you. I want to follow Jesus.
Now here we are proclaiming this same message that the church has proclaimed from Pentecost until this day. And I just want to ask the question as I close, why this message on Pentecost Sunday? How does it relate to Pentecost at all? Well, first of all, this has been the prayer that the spirit of truth, which we've talked about today, would produce in you today, through his word, a rock-solid confidence that you have eternal life and that that life is in the Son, Jesus. Just like it did for them on the day of Pentecost. And my second prayer this morning is that God will produce in you, by his spirit, the same sort of confidence that he gave to the apostles, to the disciples, who are willing at great cost to proclaim this message of salvation to all mankind because they believe this is the one way of salvation. Friends, we carry this message in ourselves. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay this morning. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I can tell you that the mission is not yet over. I read one thing that talked about how approximately, of approximately 8 billion people on planet Earth right now, about 3.2 billion are considered unreached or least reached, meaning that these people have little to no contact with Christians who can share this message with them. More than 7,000 people groups and 40% of the total population of the earth do not yet know Jesus. And we heard some of us who were gathered at, at the Wilson's home for prayer yesterday heard from the Burkles that they met many of 50 people they shared the gospel with last, uh, this, this last year, they said only two had even heard the name of Jesus. The mission is not complete, church. So what are we doing? In addition to calling you every single day to shine and share Christ with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your family, we, church, want to be a sending church who are passionate about the nations coming to know Jesus. What have we done so far? Friends, we've, we've had the privilege of sending the Schmitz out of our church. We, we've sent Beth Lane, who's serving right now. We serve four other global missionaries who are serving some of the least reached populations on earth. And man, do I want to see more sent from this body. The Wilsons are preparing to go. Who else? Who is going to join in this global mission? Is it going to be you, Jocelyn, Carlin? Who's it going to be? We've got all kinds of Bethany Global graduates, Matt Blackford. Man, who's it going to be? Who's going to go? Is it going to be the Blackford couple, power couple? Come on. They're not yet married. I'm just prophesying. Is that your parents there? They're like nudging Matt, like, come on, let's go. I'm sorry, brother. That was, that was not in my manuscript. <laughs> Who else? And I just want to ask you to commit as part of this com- commitment. If it's not you going, that you would also be, that you would be a part of the sending, that you would be a part of the praying, and that even right now, right, right here in this world, that you, in the place that God has you, that you would begin to be more faithful in proclaiming this message to your neighbor. That's, man, that's for me this morning. I just felt so convicted this week as to how little I open my mouth to share the good news. And so I repent of that. I'm confessing to you 
I want to be different there. I want my life priorities to be focused on proclaiming this name. And church, here's the good news. We have not been left, left alone in this, but God has sent his spirit to give us the power. And he is the power to help us proclaim. And he is the power to save. Until on the last day, we all together proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, honor, and glory. Amen. I want you to stand. I want to welcome the band to come play. I want to respond now to God's word. We, we have heard God speak this morning from his word. And so here I want to come to God in prayer, confessing our sin and our unbelief. And as we come, I also want us to repent of our misaligned priorities that so often neglect God's mission. Tiana, would you just play a little bit here? And let's, com- let's commit now to the Lord also to share this life with our lost neighbors. And I just, one last call here. If God is tugging on your heart right now, this morning, maybe, it's, maybe he's been tugging on your heart for years to, to be a part of this global mission. Maybe you're already a part of it. I just want to welcome you to come to the front so we can pray for you. If you want to be a part of God's global mission, if God is tugging you, maybe in the past, maybe right now, in, a, in, a, in some special way, I want to just invite you, come forward. This is not you saying, I will go, Pastor Daniel, and you know, this is my promise. That's not it. I just want to pray for you and, and look for opportunities that we can serve you. So if that's you, come down now. We'll pray with you. But let's, let's just pray right now for a few minutes.